From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. There is devastation everywhere. It is like a curtain is slowly being lifted on this disaster, revealing more and more of the suffering in the dire straits on this island. NBC's Lester Holt arrived in Puerto Rico Monday to anchor coverage of the devastation caused by Hurricane Maria's landfall five days earlier. Better late than not at all, because... No other anchors have gone, and because the previous day, the five major Sunday shows had spent less than one minute of airtime combined on that story, according to Media Matters. Much of the actual heavy curtain lifting this week has been done by CBS's David Begnow, who's been tweeting out videos as he's reporting, asking why aid isn't getting to those who need it. I'm just saying, we just left 15 minutes ago, and there are people who have not had a sip of water in 36 hours. I understand, it, and that's yeah. why uh, immediately I'm taking action, and I will, as soon as we finish the interview, make sure that uh, they're on their way. And I said to the governor earlier, I said, listen, show us. I, I, I said, it's not that I don't believe you, but help me tell the people that are asking me where the heck it is. There are more than 3,000 shipping containers here at the port which are just sitting here. It's got everything they need. The governor of Puerto Rico says they're having trouble reaching the truck drivers. Then, as millions on the mainland strain to hear from loved ones in Puerto Ricans struggle to get drinking water, President Trump tweeted about the island's debts. Tempted by a political showdown, coverage followed Trump's reluctance to ease the Jones Act, a maritime law that restricts shipping between U.S. ports, including Puerto Rico. He relented on Thursday, suspending it for 10 days, while insisting that relief efforts are going well. On the island, reporters lent satellite phones out for quick calls to loved ones, but Univision took the connections a step further, sending crews out in Puerto Rico to record tearful video messages and then beaming them back to relatives. Robbie, cariño, But even with a powerful human drama unfolding, a 538 analysis shows that Puerto Rico's story hasn't gotten anywhere near the same print or broadcast coverage as Hurricane Harvey's hit to Texas or Irma's damage in Florida a few weeks ago. Also, Google searches for Hurricane Maria were lower than for Irma or Harvey, too, which means it's not just media and government who seem to view Puerto Ricans as second-class citizens. Many Americans, 54 percent according to a new poll, don't even realize that they're, in fact, citizen citizens. And not surprisingly, people are more likely to want to send aid if they know that Puerto Ricans are actually Americans. Among those who do know, 81% wanted to send aid, but among those who don't, only 44% did. We have fought for the U.S. We have been in different wars, working for America forever. Sandra Rodriguez-Cotto is a Puerto Rican columnist. When the storm hit, she was listening to Radio WAPA, the only radio station on the island to broadcast continuously as Maria made landfall. It got to a point that one of the reporters got emotional on the air, and I thought, well, he must be exhausted. So the next day, I came here as a volunteer, and they put me on the air, and I said to all the reporters, TV anchors, radio personalities, psychologists, and people that want to just basically help, please come, come here. 
And so far, we have had about 35 reporters from different radio stations. News anchors have come and newspaper reporters. And more people are coming every day. Newspapers are publishing only online, but with most of the island out of power, their work mainly reaches the diaspora. TV stations are broadcasting, but the anchors admit they have no idea who's watching. So with regular lines of communication down, WAPA, broadcasting over the airwaves, has been helping to coordinate rescue and relief efforts for more than a week. Just to give you an example, last night we found out that there was an elderly home in San Juan. And it's a five-story building, and they have people who are on wheelchairs and people who cannot walk, really, really old people. They have no food, no water, no electricity, and the administrator basically left them there. We found out through a neighbor and a volunteer, a doctor, heard it on the radio, went to the home and then came to the station to verify the information. We just alerted the government. With electric power cut off, hospitals are running out of fuel for generators. ATMs aren't working, so there's no cash but also very little to buy. Lines for gas are long, and you can buy only $15 worth at a time. Only 40% of Puerto Ricans have clean drinking water. But Cotto says she's trying her best not to panic and not to panic her listeners. They're still in shock after the hurricane, and they were expecting the government to recuperate faster. Here in WAPA, we're trying to tell people to be patient. We have to work together on this one. I'm optimistic that at least this could be a new beginning for Puerto Rico, believe it or not. But this gives us the opportunity to build something new and to rethink what we have been doing to the environment in Puerto Rico, to the way politics have been taking over basically our lives. So in that sense, I'm optimistic because when you see people from different ideologies, from different areas, joining forces and basically saying the same that I just told you, it gives me hope. Coming up, turns out what we sing at the Super Bowl is not exactly your father's national anthem or his father's or the founding father's either. This is On The Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last Friday, during an Alabama rally, as the president was stumping for GOP primary hopeful Luther Strange, who would lose, the president took a moment to reflect on a subject dear to his heart. You know, it has to be a see-through wall. If I don't know if you know this, 
If you can't have vision through it, you don't know who's on the other side. Uh, no, not that. The NFL. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? Everything that we stand for. The rest, as they say, is history. President Trump versus the NFL across the country. The biggest plays happening before the game. A show of solidarity and defiance against the president. Countless NFL players and owners have pushed back, as well as players from other sports. Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors said they would not come to the White House to have their NBA championship honored there. And even LeBron James weighed in, calling the president a bum. Trump being Trump? doubled down. President Trump tweeted, quote, tremendous backlash against the NFL and its players for disrespect of our country. Hashtag stand for our anthem. And down. You look at what's happening with their ratings. You cannot have people disrespecting our national anthem, our flag, our country. And that's what they're doing. And down. I think they're afraid of their players. You want to know the truth. And I think it's disgraceful. It makes for the perfect Trump potpourri. Spicy notes of culture war grievance, racist insinuations, appeals to patriotism and order, and the ever-present obsession with ratings and profit margins. A rich mix, balanced by the quixotic efforts of White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders to obscure the obvious. Look, this isn't about the president being against anyone, but this is about the president and millions of Americans being for something being for honoring our flag, honoring our national anthem, honoring the men and women who fought to defend it. A point echoed by Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, folks, we've all got a right to our opinions, but I don't think it's too much to ask the players in the National Football League to stand for our national anthem. And naturally by action star Steven Seagal. I think it's outrageous. I think it's a joke. It's disgusting. Obviously, the players weren't kneeling to protest a banner, but to protest racial injustice. As San Francisco 49ers player Eric Reed wrote this week in the New York Times, he kneels out of respect for the values the flag is meant to represent. The president and his mouthpieces seem unable to grasp that distinction. They fail to see, as S.I. Hayakawa put it, the symbol is not the thing symbolized. The word is not the thing. The map is not the territory it stands for. Instead, that confusion spiraled into absurdity. What would the reaction be from all the wise people on television if players were protesting the Mexican flag? When North Korea aims a missile at us, are these football players going to be on their knees? Or are they going to support our veterans? You know, there's a reason the NFL, some call it the No Fun League. Take a look at these examples. Celebrations banned, including twerking and shooting a bow and arrow in the end zone. Is that a violation of free speech? Twerking, Hannity? So here's the thing. When it comes to someone else's speech, you don't have to like it. But assuming they act within the law, you do have to live with it. It's a right that predates Trump, predates the national anthem, predates even the flag they're kneeling before. 
symbols that represent our nation are both potent and yet strangely personal. Will Robin, assistant professor of musicology at the University of Maryland, wrote last year in The New Yorker that such symbols are always more complicated than their origin myths. For instance, if we drill down into the rich history of the national anthem, we can see Colin Kaepernick as an heir to a long lineage of musical defiance. Typically, we talk about the beginning of the Star-Spangled Banner being 1814. Francis Scott Key aboard a ship in the Baltimore Harbor. Come daybreak, the flag is still standing after this battle. And Mm -hmm. he pens this poem. And I'm going to come back to that part because that's (laughs) part of this myth of the Star-Spangled Banner called the defense of Fort McHenry. So one myth, the idea that Francis Scott Key wrote a song or wrote a poem in 1814 called the Star-Spangled Banner. The second myth, if you know a little bit more about the Star-Spangled Banner, you might say, oh, but it's actually a British drinking song. Right. This song goes back to the 1770s in Britain. The British part is true. What's not really true is the pub song part. What's important to understand about the history of the Star-Spangled Banner is that there's a tradition in the English-speaking world between the 16th century and the 19th century of what's called the broadside ballad. Songs that folks knew would be retexted with new lyrics Sometimes these would be published in newspapers or in songsters and collections of lyrics. Wait a minute. Don't we have our own broadside master? (laughs) No, absolutely. And that's actually funny because the tradition was known as parodies, but parodies weren't necessarily always satirical. Sometimes it was about using a familiar song to talk about current day events, to spread the news to this old song that they already knew. In the 1770s, there was a society, a kind of gentleman's music and dinner club of men who met in London and would get together for a performance about a two-hour symphony orchestra concert, followed by a dinner, followed by an evening of singing songs together. This was called the Anacreontic Society, named for the Greek poet Anacreon. Mm -hmm. In between the dinner and the evening of singing, they commissioned John Stafford Smith, an English composer, to write what became known as the Anacreontic Song. It's a little bit on the body side, but it's not in any way a kind of drinking song. (laughs) And it was performed actually by a hired tenor who was a virtuoso. And that tune becomes widespread, first in the English culture, and then it makes its way to the United States. So in the 1790s, there were texts published that were praising the French and saying that the Americans should come to the aid of the French during the French Revolution. In a kind of counterpart attack against that text, there was another text saying that we should hang the French ambassador. In 1798, Tom Paine's son wrote a version in defense of President John Adams. Adams and Liberty was very popular. Francis Scott Key would have known it. Francis Scott Key himself, before writing The Star-Spangled Banner, actually wrote his own new lyrics to the Anacreontic song. When the warrior returns from the battle afar To the home and the country he nobly defended So, Francis Scott Key, he writes this new lyrics towards the end of the War of 1812 against the British. Oh, 
The song does not become the official national anthem until 1931, and that's really important because we have more than 100 years of this song being widely performed and popular as a kind of icon of American national identity, but not necessarily our national anthem. Even after Francis Scott Key wrote this new text, there was a tradition of continuing to write new lyrics for the song. So an example of this is in 1844, an abolitionist newspaper published um, what they called a new version of the national song with lyrics that castigated slavery and drew on Key's words to change the meaning, to emphasize the kind of irony and disillusion between the ideals of what Key's text is talking about and the reality of slave ownership in the United States at that time. Our star-spangled banner at half-mast shall wave over the deathbed of freedom, the home of the slave. This tradition of rewriting the song waned by the 20th century, right? Yeah. So instead, we see the voicing of dissent in new musical forms. One of the most powerful precedents for Kaepernick's protest is, of course, the Black Power sign being raised by Tommy Smith and John Carlos in support of the Black Power movement during the playing of the anthem at the 1968 Olympics. And, you know, a year after that, the most kind of powerful follow-up to that is Jimi Hendrix's performance of the banner at Woodstock Mm -hmm. in 1969. raising of the fist in uh, 1968, the kneeling of Kaepernick, Mm -hmm. these are so somber, so much more so than rewriting the lyrics. Remember, Kaepernick first started by sitting on the bench during the national anthem, and then he and Reed spoke actually with a former Green Beret and talked about what the next step would be in terms of this protest, and they decided to kneel. And Eric Reed says, I remember thinking... Our posture was like a flag flown at half-mast to mark a tragedy. I mean, it's really a shame the way that the meaning is being distorted, not only by the president, but also by the way in which this issue around, um, you know, police violence against black communities has shifted towards being this kind of more general statement of solidarity on the part of the NFL. Kaepernick was so explicit about searching for and choosing the most respectful gesture he could, Mm. and the confusion over what he is protesting brings in, you know, the age-old confusion over the meaning of patriotism itself. I mean, I read his gesture as almost a prayerful effort to Mm. have America 
as represented by the anthem or the flag, actually fulfill its promise. In 1861, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. added an additional verse to the end of the Star-Spangled Banner at the outbreak of war, at the beginning of secession of the Civil War. By the millions unchained who our birthright have gained, we will keep her bright blazon forever unstained. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. And this was an aspirational addition that anticipated emancipation and was often frequently amended to the end of the star-spangled banner in the late 19th century as well. I guess the star-spangled banner remains a symbol subject to scrutiny and to Mm -hmm. alteration for as long as it remains our anthem. Absolutely. And, you know, as a musicologist, I acknowledge the fact that, you know, the Star Spangled Banner is not the greatest possible option for a national anthem. You know, it's too hard to sing. It's not the most attractive melody in the world. But at the same time, I like to think it's an interesting song. If we maybe spend a little bit more time unpacking this longer history in which the anthem has meant so many different things and represented so many different opportunities for voicing political dissent and ultimately voicing American citizenship, the idea that responding in some way to this anthem, as Colin Kaepernick has, as Jimi Hendrix has, is part of the kind of core of American identity. And this music was so mutable and changeable for such a long period of time before it settled into these traditions that are actually not nearly as old as we might think. Will, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Will Robin is an assistant professor of musicology at the University of Maryland and a contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Times. This week, the FBI's new crime statistics tallied 17,250 homicides in the United States last year, an increase of more than 8.5% from 2015. The right-wing media quickly sprang into action. Breitbart's headline read, FBI data post-Ferguson murder spike reaches 3,761 dead, while the Daily Caller declared, the FBI just confirmed what Sessions has been saying about violent crime. For his part, Attorney General Jeff Sessions responded with a predictable message of doom. In a statement accompanying the report, Attorney General Jeff Sessions warned against such a trend, saying that confronting and turning back the rising tide of violent crime is a must. American carnage, yada, yada, yada. And from the political left... Also, yada, 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 pundits and policy advocates cherry-picking the FBI report to support their own doctrine. Thomas Abt, a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and Harvard Law School and a former deputy secretary for public safety for New York State, urges less politicking, more clarity. This crime spike is cause for concern, but not panic our murder rates are still quite low compared to what they've been historically. They're about half of what they were when they hit the high in 1980. Okay, so the administration and the right-wing media played to type, blaming minorities and drugs and doubling down on incarceration, which the data don't necessarily support. But the intellectual dishonesty is coming from the left as well. In what ways... 
There's a few ways that progressives, and I consider myself a committed progressive, downplay this data. The first is that they basically say, this is just a few neighborhoods in a few cities. There's some truth to that. Six neighborhoods in Chicago were responsible for about 10% of the national rise, and Chicago as a total contributed about 22%. However, violent crime and homicide in particular is up in most of America's cities and in most of America's states. Another thing they say, which is true, is that the murder rate remains near historical lows. However, even if it is near historical lows, it's literally a matter of life and death. And then finally, some of the typical progressive explanations are not accurate. You know, this is about socioeconomic factors. This is about root causes. None of those things have changed from 2014 to 2015 to 2016. So they're not good explanations of why this crime might be up. The abuse of crime statistics obviously also interferes with how we go about dealing with crime. What should policymakers be doing with this latest FBI report and other data sets? Well, when these numbers come out, they become sort of fodder for an ongoing national argument on criminal justice reform. And what we really need to do is shift the focus from winning arguments to solving problems. The other thing that we need to do is realize that many of our efforts related to criminal justice reform are actually not at odds with reducing crime. They're actually quite consistent with that. At the end of the day, we're not going to solve this homicide issue unless two major constituencies come together, the police and other law enforcement agencies and communities. And what I worry about is that the intensity of the debate, the heat of the debate, the toxicity of the debate is pulling those two communities farther and farther apart. So there is the central crime issue and what is causing this spike in violence. And then there's the larger political issue of whether police are systematically abusing minority communities versus their vital function in maintaining civil order. You're saying the politicization of things like crime data reports makes it harder and harder to hold those apparently opposing ideas in your head at the same time. Exactly. If you move from a message that is critical of law enforcement to a message that is anti-law enforcement, that's not particularly helpful because law enforcement is an essential service. Take Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is enormously important in raising a set of issues in the public's consciousness. But one of the policy recommendations that you often hear associated with Black Lives Matter is basically get the police out of these communities. That won't be helpful. And in fact, the people living in those communities often want more police, better police. They just don't want the wrong type of policing, overly aggressive, racially biased policing. And so as someone with experience making policy at the federal level, the state level, and at the local level, I can tell you that the politics matters. And if the politics is toxic, it really limits your options. If we can assume that the Breitbarts of the world and that the attorney general sessions of the world are going to cherry pick crime data to portray it in the most sort of fear-mongering and stereotyping way, if the left just takes a more intellectually honest view of the data and of policy notions, have they any chance of prevailing? 
Progressives have gotten some things wrong on this latest uptick in violent crime, but the narrative coming out of the far right is far worse. Trump and Sessions continue to link violence to immigration when every serious examination tells us that immigrants are less likely to commit crime than the average citizen. And they continue to link the uh, issue of violence to drugs in an effort to sort of restart the war on drugs, which was disastrous. Look, the opioid crisis started five years earlier than this recent uptick. It is not likely to be the cause here. And also, the way drug markets work has shifted. There's less violence associated with this opioid epidemic. Trump and a few people, Sheriff Arpaio, David Clark, and Jeff Sessions. Clark is the Wisconsin sheriff who just left his job, who was a Trumpista on all matters, drugs and crime. Right. These sort of four crime dinosaurs threaten to take us back decades to policies that really have already gone extinct. There was an emerging consensus among progressives and conservatives about the need to re-examine many criminal justice policies. And Trump's emergence, this narrative's emergence, has really disrupted that. I feel obliged to ask you this. While the administration likes to suggest that we should be sending local cops in armored personnel carriers down Martin Luther King Boulevard to stamp out the American carnage once and for all, does not this latest data set actually seem to validate their view of not the solution, but of the problem? I think that that's an interesting point. I do think that progressives sometimes try to look the other way when violent crime begins to rise. And this is really a disservice. We as progressives say that we care about the most disenfranchised, the most disadvantaged people. And we owe it to those people to have a progressive response, and we do. The National Network for Safe Communities, ROCA in Boston, where I'm from, Becoming a Man in Chicago does great work. There are progressives working directly on violence who don't get enough attention and don't get enough support. Part of the reason is because the highest echelon of progressive leaders sort of sticks to the traditional progressive talking points. And we need a new progressive position on violence. The evidence is there. The work has been done. We just need to talk about it more. Thomas, thank you. Thank you. Thomas Apt is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School and a former deputy secretary for public safety for the state of New York. Coming up... When it comes to free speech, we owe a debt of gratitude to the late Hugh Hefner. This is On the Media. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. As the NFL protests and divisive discussions of free speech dominated the American media, a struggle with serious speech suppression was being waged in Catalonia, Spain's wealthiest region. Thousands of protesters take to the streets of Barcelona. The target of their fury, the police. Earlier, the offices of the Catalan regional government were searched and 14 people arrested. Their alleged crime preparing for the independence referendum on October the 1st. All signs of an escalating power struggle between Catalonia and the Spanish government. Since 1978, the Spanish constitution has granted the region a great deal of independence, its own parliament, police force, and even in recent years, the privilege of referring to itself as a nation. But in 2010, Spain's high court scaled back much of that autonomy, and thus the modern Catalan separatist movement was born. As the Catalan government prepares for Sunday's referendum on independence, Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has repeatedly reminded voters that the vote has been ruled unconstitutional. Those in charge at the Catalan government who are the protagonist in this challenge to our coexistence, I ask them to cease in their illegal activities. They should abandon their objectives. They now know that this referendum cannot be organized. It was never legal or legitimate. It is now no more than an impossible dream. Intent on quashing the vote, Spanish officials have threatened Catalan media and seized referendum posters and flyers. And in Barcelona, this has an all-too-familiar ring. Under the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, Catalan language and culture were brutally repressed for nearly 40 years. After his 1975 death, Madrid promised the region autonomy, but that promise is now broken, says Vicente Partal, founder and editor of Villa Web, a Catalan news outlet based in Barcelona. I was born in the dictatorship. My parents, my family, my whole town spoke Catalan. But when I went to school, Catalan was strictly forbidden. They beaten us if we say a single word in Catalan. But after Franco's death... There were a sort of agreement between Spain and Catalonia on how to conduct our relationships. And this agreement was broken unilaterally by the Spanish government 10 years ago. And from this moment on, a lot of people here in Catalonia begin to think, why not have a separate republic inside the European Union? As I understand it, there's essentially three reasons for the current move towards independence. One is the historical desire for Catalonia to be recognized as a true nation. Then there is the fact that it's quite prosperous putting more into the federal pot than it is receiving from the government. And thirdly, that the federal government of Spain has reneged on the autonomy deal that gave you the power you do have. Yeah, of course, people in Catalonia is concerned about the money, but it is not the driving force. The driving force is dignity. What are some of the tactics Madrid has taken to suppress the vote? They take under detention some junior members of the Catalan government. 
that provoke a strong situation in the street with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets defending the buildings of the Catalan government. They are seizing print plants looking for the ballots. They are looking for the ballot boxes. They are doing everything they can in order to prevent the referendum. Raiding newsrooms? Yeah, yeah. They raid the media in Catalonia. They send the paramilitary police to all newspapers, including mine, with an order to stop publishing political parties' ads on the referendum. So some newspapers decide to stop and accept the censorship. And of course, I refuse to do it. They got the post office involved. How did they do that? They went to the postal service and give them orders to open the envelopes they believe are suspicious, looking for ballots, but also, for instance, there were magazines that were distributed via postal service, and there is a, a very important magazine here in Catalonia. They decide to stop the distribution of, of this magazine. This is absolutely unlawful, but they did it. Not only that, they gave orders to the telecoms in Spain to block 200 government websites, civil society websites. Now, for instance, you cannot reach the official website of the referendum from Spain, but you can reach it from New York. It's not a problem because they are using the censorship the same way Turkey is doing it, by forcing the telecoms not to allow the people to reach this domain. But Catalan president is a young journalist well known for being a Twitter pioneer. He knows very well technology. And the Catalan government is using social networks where people can reach the information they need in order to know the place where they must vote. Hmm. Now, you mentioned the Catalan president, Carles Puigdemont. Then there is the Spanish prime minister, Mariano Rajoy, who you say is fighting an 18th century battle in a 21st century war. What do you mean? For instance, the day Prime Minister Rajoy went into public TV and said, OK, referendum is over, saying the power of the state is stopping this thing. While he was speaking on TV, President Puigdemont sent just a tweet saying, OK, guys, here is the website where you will find how to vote and where. At least from a journalistic and sociological point of view, this battle between the old way to do things and the new way is very interesting. The Spanish police, for instance, go into a print plant and got the referendum posters made by the Catalan government. The reaction of the people was create new posters that can print in the house printers. And that become a phenomenon because young people was creating new kind of posters. The Spanish prime minister entourage, they just didn't understand how this is happening. All right, now what you're describing is a populist movement that is growing with every effort by Madrid to suppress it. However, Madrid also has the police, and yes. they have made attempts to move 4,000 civil guard into Catalonia to keep people from the ballot box on Sunday. Is there a chance that there will be violence? We don't know. Today, the situation in Catalonia is a big problem, a big concern for the European Union. The European Union is highlighting itself as the champion of civil rights in the world. This week, for instance, in Brussels, there has been some press conferences where the journalists are saying, how can you say to Turkey you cannot close down websites and Spain is closing down websites? How can you say that uh, you cannot go into the new rooms and say to the people what can publish and where not. 
if they are Turks and you cannot say the same thing for the Spanish. So I don't know what will happen on Sunday, but it's very difficult to imagine a mass violence. I want to ask you about Villa Webb and you. You are obviously arguing for press independence Mm -hmm. versus uh, suppression by Madrid. But you are also an advocate for Catalonian independence, and you have taken sides. I have been a journalist since 1983. I have worked all my life in foreign affairs in places like the Balkans or Tiananmen Square in China or the apartheid in South Africa. So I have seen how the world works. And uh, one of the things that I learned uh, very quickly is that most often when people ask you to be balanced, in fact, what they are trying to say is don't think. My heroes always in journalism has been those professionals who understand that they think for themselves and trying to help the society who trusts them trying to stay away from a discussion that everyone is involved with. Here in Catalonia today, from the football club Barcelona to the banks to the union labors, everyone is taking sides. So why not I should take sides, especially if I'm taking sides not for a political party, not for the discussion of who is ruling the country the next four years, but for something that happens only once in the life of a country. Vicent, thank you very much. Thank you to you. Vicent Partal is chairman of the board of the European Journalism Center and founder and editor of Vila Web, a Catalonian news site based in Barcelona. We end with an appraisal of a free speech crusader who's not famous for suffering or sacrifice. I speak, of course, of Hugh Hefner, who died Wednesday at the age of 91, his ashes interred in a Los Angeles cemetery in the crypt next to Marilyn Monroe's, just as he planned. Marilyn was his first cover girl in 1963, though already a year in her crypt, she made Playboy. That Hefner made bank off of women's breasts is self-evident, but did he give back? I spoke to him in 2003. You know, it's an amazing thing you did, weaving together a passion for literature, civil rights, runny cheeses, and big breasts into what you call a viable aesthetic. And it was an attempt to incorporate, uh, in a positive way, a sexuality into the rest of the kinds of interests that a person spends their time on when they're not working. Our notion of playing hard was largely uh, bowling and watching television, and there was more to life than that. I think that, you know, our traditional values, and, and our, they're rooted in our religious values, uh, has pitted mind and body against one another. The notion that the devil is in the flesh. I didn't buy it when I was young. I don't buy it now. In the Playboy philosophy, you quote from one of your most eloquent critics, Harvey Cox, who wrote a piece that was reprinted in various Christian journals of opinion and college newspapers. Can I read you his quote? Sure, of course. Moralistic criticisms of Playboy fail because its anti-moralism is one of the few places in which Playboy is right. Thus, any theological critique of Playboy that focuses on its lewdness will misfire completely. Playboy and its less successful imitators are not sex magazines at all. They dilute and dissipate authentic sexuality by reducing it to an accessory, by keeping it at a safe distance. And he concludes with, we must see in Playboy the latest and slickest episode in man's continuing refusal to be fully human. 
Well, I think that's very sophisticated semantics, but not very accurate. I mean, the reality is that uh, far from being accessories, the romantic relationship between the sexes expressed from a male point of view is what Playboy is all about. It's what makes the world go around. The fine food and wine and the clothes and the cars and the gadgetry, those are the accessories. But the part that really matters is the connection between the opposite sex. Here's a clip that we borrowed from your A&E biography. It's you being challenged by feminist Susan Brownmiller on The Dick Cavett Show. The role that you have selected for women is degrading to women because you choose to see women as sex objects. You make them look like animals, yes. Women aren't bunnies, they're not rabbits, they're human beings. The day that you are willing to come out here with a cotton tail attached to your rear end... We've been accused, obviously, of exploiting women, exploiting sex. I think Playboy exploits sex... You know, I just think exploit is an unfortunate word. Playboy exploits sex like Sports Illustrated exploits sports. <laughs> now, I noticed that you never responded to her specific challenge about the bunny tails. I mean, it would, after all, be antithetical to the Playboy aesthetic to attach a little fuzzy ball of cotton to your own tush, wouldn't it? Yes, I think so. <laughs> but is that fair? <laughs> and that feminist diatribe... Uh, it didn't make a lot of sense back then. It seems very foolish today. I think that in the intervening years, uh, women really have become truly human. That antisexual part of feminism is very antiquated and, quite frankly, was anti-revolutionary even at the time. To be truly ha- human, women have to embrace their sexuality. Back in the uh, early days when you were creating that costume and that image, it wasn't women expressing their own sexuality. It was women putting on the costume that you had designed for them. This yes. was this wasn't them embracing their own sexuality. This was them embracing yours. True. That's what makes it work. Can you say anything about how the image of the Playboy bunny has evolved? I mean, does she still find uh, walks on the beach a turn on and mean people a turn off? Probably. <laughs> some, th- some things in terms of humankind don't change that much. What are you wearing? Pajamas, of course. <laughs> it seemed to me that he regarded playmates as delectable dimwits. As for the rest of womankind, I don't know. I don't much care. While he may have been an aspirational icon in his mid-century prime, I was a little kid in the 60s, and to me he seemed weird, like an overgrown adolescent in a velvet smoking jacket. But adolescents can do amazing things with sex and money, maybe even blaze new paths in a prudish nation's freedom of speech. Writer Gay Talese, a notable practitioner of new journalism, certainly thought so, Fifteen years ago, he spoke to Bob. Hefner, in the the 1950s, introduced into middle America a sense that women with their clothes off belonged in our lives, and they were okay. That was the big thing, in the beginning at least, of Playboy's contribution to popular culture. What it did was bring to the jury system a demunition of being shocked by nudity, because they'd seen so much of it. All that nudity that Playboy extended into small towns and, and, and restricted areas and into home life, it gave a kind of a, a sense of being blasé toward the nude female form, so that when they, in pornography cases, voted whether to or whether not to punish a person who was brought up on charges of obscenity, they tended to acquit rather than convict. 
but the legal decisions that resulted from the anti-smut prosecutions by the postal inspectors and other agencies, did they extend beyond the issue of pornography into other areas of free speech? They most certainly did. The dirty work was done by the pornographer. It wasn't done by Alfred A. Knopf or Random House or, or the Library Association of America. They did nothing in terms of free speech. It's because the smut peddlers took the beating in the courts. They fought the government. They fought the Catholic Legion of Decency. They fought the moral code, and they made it open for Arthur Miller, Philip Roth, John Updike, Joyce Carol Oates. They all owe to the smut peddler their freedom. Hefner is a major figure in fighting against repression, and that means any kind of repression. It isn't just the right to show naked women or naked men or whatever. That's part of it. But if you can show naked women, naked men, you can show a lot of nakedness in terms of language. You don't have to worry about putting a fig leaf on a verb, don't you see? Bob asked Talise about all those great interviews and all the great writers that graced the pages of Playboy in its heyday. Were these first-rate contributions to Playboy ever anything more than window dressing for soft porn? Obscenity, in order to be not obscene, has to have redeeming social value. So Playboy had, in addition to the naked women we all might have lusted for, redeeming social value in the form of a lot of boring interviews with, with Noam Shomsky <laughs> that was there in the pages of Playboy. There were good writers, Erwin Shaw in the old days, and Norman Mailer, and John Updike, I mentioned beginning, and Joyce Carol Oates. But you take those girls and you banish them to Siberia, and Mr. Hefner and Playboy with him goes into receivership. He's out of business. He's back in Chicago without a swimming pool, without a jacuzzi, with nothing. <laughs> Let me tell you where I stand with Playboy. I don't read it. I never read it. I never have published a piece in it. I've never submitted an article to be published in Playboy. Okay? My defense of Playboy is because Playboy made my life and the life of every writer easier. So, when America's foremost self-gratifier left the building, at least he left a gratuity. Hugh Marston Hefner, born in Prohibition Chicago, deceased in Trump's grab-em-by-the-hoo-ha America. Hef, who famously said, in my wildest dreams, I never could have imagined a sweeter life. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Andrew Dunn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.